Yes, very good morning. This is On The Record with Kieran Cuddihy. With you until one o'clock. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so in the usual ways. 53106 for your texts. Those will cost you 30 cent. Or you can get me for Twitter. On Twitter, should I say, for free. Uh, at Kieran Cuddihy. We've lots coming up on the programme today. As always, we're going to kick it off uh, with a look at the Sunday newspapers. Our panel in studio today for that purpose. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News. Ellen Coyne, journalist with the Times Ireland edition. And Dr. Owen O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Good morning. You're all very Welcome. Morning, Good morning. morning. Uh, just run through the front pages for people at home. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Professor Jobs only for women to end bias. Landmark move in gender wars, jobs for the girls, backlash fear. Anyway, Mary Mitchell O'Connor writing a piece inside the Sunday Independent today on page 29 and it's their front page that uh, to deal with uh, the lack of uh, female professors in third level institutions uh, that she would create roles it seems to be that uh, would only be open to women anyway we'll talk about that in more detail in a few minutes time uh, the Sunday Times state to defend Callanan over smear campaign so this is the legal action being taken by Morris McCabe against Martin Callanan and others and uh, the Department of Justice and Garda headquarters have agreed to provide the former commissioner with legal representation uh, in this high court action uh, the front page of the business post uh, they have uh, a big piece on Dermot Desmond inside the paper but their lead surge in British funds coming to Ireland as Brexit talks heat up. Uh, we will be talking about Brexit as well in a little while. Uh, interesting story from Susan Mitchell uh, below the fold. HSE's efforts to replace Tony O'Brien collapse. So John Connacht John Conaghan is the interim uh, DG of the HSE. Uh, he's told staff that he's going to be staying on in the post longer into 2019 because they haven't found someone uh, to take over yet. He hasn't actually applied for it. Um, this is according to a senior health source who as well says they might have to come back and look at the package. It's about €250,000 a year. They say this is considerably lower than the remuneration on offer to those heading up hospital trusts in Britain's NHS. It's lower than some it's actually higher than other trusts it depends what part of the NHS you go to uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, Leo's two Christmas holidays as health minister Radker went to Florida and Canaries as trolley figures fluctuated uh, the Sunday World uh, killers crime clean and they've got a photo on the front page a CCTV grab of Paul Wells going to a shop to buy a detergent and bleach to clean up his murder and Fat Freddy Thompson wants to be addressed by his proper title don't call me Fat Freddy <laughs> uh, Len Brennan style uh, on the front page of the Irish Sunday Mirror uh, don't call him fat <laughs> that is uh, fat enough no, yeah. isn't, isn't, isn't he supposed to be uh, Fit Freddy these days because of his yeah. new fit- Oh yeah, he looks great. I have to say it. He looks great, you know, (laughs) on the front page there. Um, He has lost weight, but anyway, address him by his proper title. Um, We'll come back to some of the stories that I mentioned there in a moment, but uh, a little bit later on the show, uh, John Horn is going to be chatting to us. He is in Paris uh, this morning at the uh, Armistice Day commemorations at the Arc de Triomphe. And uh, look, there's lots of Armistice Day stuff in the paper. Sebastian Fox writing in the Sunday Times magazine section actually is a particularly good read today. Uh, but I just wonder, did anything stand out for anyone here in Studio Own? Anything stand out for you today? Uh, the thing that stood out for me actually wasn't in the Sunday papers. It was in the FT yesterday, which was by Neil McGregor, uh, who... I think was the head of the British Museum, but he's currently based in Germany. And he was just contrasting how the British do it to how the Germans do it and how Britain, it's all about sort of remembering soldiers and counting the number of soldiers. It's a bit about kind of celebrating uh, war victories, whereas in Germany, it's 
remember they try to remember the other side. Uh, well, possibly because of who Germ- the wars that Germany fought in, but it, a lot more is about peace and preventing war. Whereas in Britain, it's it's a sort of militaristic parade and celebrating mm. the war. Uh, that I mean, there was also there was other stuff about the Irish angle. There's been something in the Mail on Sunday about how the GAA has kind of gone with uh, remembering the, those that died 100 years ago. Elaine Byrne in the Sunday Business Post has some, has something, a kind of personal story yeah. about her great-grandfather. Ellen, anything stand out for you in the papers? Uh, yeah, I think it is uh, the Sebastian Fox piece in the Sunday Times magazine because there is like acres and acres of coverage in all of the papers today. But I think that that was the best one in kind of striking... Um, a good kind of reasonable line. And he just talks about this conflict between people who maybe viewed the war as a futile exercise and then maybe that other kind of, as you said, militaristic style of commemorating it in Britain, which seems to distill it and simplify it. He was saying instead of trying to pick one side or the other for commemorating, wouldn't it be better and more respectful to just use the commemoration as another attempt to understand what happened? And particularly, I mean, uh, I think the Taoiseach is, um, was just speaking this morning in Paris and talking about this emergence of xenophobia and racism across Europe, how that resulted in the deaths of millions of people and something it's something that he's kind of seeing now and kind of wants to use today as an opportunity to talk about that instead. Yeah. Niall Ferguson sometimes wants me, wants, makes me want to tear my hair out uh, in the Sunday Times, but actually his piece is quite good today. Page 18, if people want to read it, Remembrance of the Great War is hollow and without honesty. But uh, anything for you, Gav? Uh, there's one line uh, from Eilish O'Hanlon in the Sunday Independent and she talks about how, and it actually goes back to what Ome was saying a moment ago, that um, this has effectively become Britain's national day because they don't have a national holiday in the same as the rest of us do. So suddenly November the 11th... And Not yet. The, the Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Uh, <laughs> but that this this has basically become the de facto national holiday and because, you know, Britain's biggest contribution to the world was largely its its armed forces for the last hundreds of centuries, for better, for worse. And I'm actually struck uh, when, when Owen mentions the comparison between how Britain does it and how Germany does it. I lived in Germany before, studying there for a year, and I remember on the um, their national day is October the 3rd, which is the, the day of German reunification and in 1990. And you would think that, you know, having grown up in Ireland, that your national day means parades and people with flags and street fairs and sort of general carnival atmosphere. People getting absolutely mouldy. No, and (laughs) less so of that in Germany, although it's more more easily available. Um, In fact, in Germany, basically the entire country effectively shuts down. The shops aren't open. There is nothing on the streets. Nothing happens. Everyone just stays at home for the day. And part of the reason for that is because they have this national national discomfort with the idea of flag waving because they know that they've been through too many circumstances where, you know, clutching your flag too closely was something which was bad for the world at large. So it's interesting that Mm. they would use their way of remembrance as remembering both sides, the people Mm. that they fought against as well. And uh, I was just struck by Elisha Hanlon's observation, this has become Britain's accidental national holiday for better or worse. Yeah, absolutely. Look, lots of coverage, as I said, in all the papers. Uh, We'll have more on the Armistice Day commemorations to come. Donald Fallon of Hidden Histories as well would have some stories about the Irish involvement and about the reception back home and we're not talking about the kind of the long term reception but rather like on the day and the days afterwards itself some of the celebrations on the streets and the rioting and the Sinn Féin offices were attacked and Liberty Hall was attacked uh, really interesting stuff and we'll have some uh, some recordings as well of uh, Irish prisoners of war uh, who were in German POW camps during the war and this German teacher embarked on this great project where uh, 
he went around and he asked them to record either stories from home or songs from home as well. So we'll have a little bit of that uh, later on. And as I said, Professor John Horn as well is at the Arc de Triomphe and we'll be touching base with him uh, shortly after 12. Uh, but I mentioned that story that's on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Mary Mitchell O'Connor is writing inside the paper about it. Uh, the Minister for Higher Education is to create woman-only professorships in a radical move to address a persistent gender inequality at senior levels in universities and third level colleges. Owen, as a representative. What's your take on the story? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's obviously an ongoing issue where there are at senior levels far too few women at, at, at the most senior levels. Uh, and it's something that Mary Mitchell O'Connor has kind of taken a hold of and, and has decided to to uh, to try and do something about a lot of what she's tried to do is to kind of berate the universities and tell them they have to do it and I think the universities are reluctantly you know admitting that there have been problems in the past now with this plan it's not clear what exactly she's going to do she's there is a suggestion that she might be creating new uh, women only professorships in which case, we were kind of talking before, she'll have to pony up some cash for that because a professorship, if you, say, decide you want to bequeath the Kieran Cudahy professorship in media or something mm-hmm. like that, Thinking about it'll it. cost you about 10 million quid to do that. Thinking uh, about it slightly less now. Gotcha. <laughs> Not there yet. Uh, so, I mean, a, a professorship, a new professorship will... So usually it won't cost you. We'll we'll do a deal with you. We might give it to you for five or something like that. But it will it'll cost quite a lot of money. So if she is trying to create, presumably she's going to do more than one. Yeah, uh, you're talking about tens of millions very quickly, and I'm not sure she has the resources to do that. Uh, in which case, then she's just try will be trying to ask them to make it that vacancies are now mm. for women only. Um, I mean, there's the legality of which I'm not quite sure of. I mean, I'd be one of the people who might be effect, directly affected by that if when I apply for promotion, I'm told, sorry, you can't apply for this because it's just for, for women only. It will be open. It'll be at least open to, ch- to legal challenge. So I'm not quite sure whether it's something that uh, is something that has been fully thought through. Gavin, in her piece inside the paper, she does talk and, and there is a, a front page piece. Mm. Um, uh, she has taken advice from the Attorney General. That, like, you might explain to us the situation because when I, re- I suppose when I read the headline, the reaction I had along with a lot was it's, there will surely be issues around equality legislation and employment legislation here. Yeah, there, there is a mention of uh, the, the consultation with the Attorney General. I'm just trying to pick it out here right now. I've got the piece in front of me, but she says that uh, as Minister for Higher Education in conjunction with the Department on creating female-only professorial posts, uh, by the by, and we will come back to this, I wonder whether, in fact, it is up to the government to create professorial posts or is it supposed to be up to the individual universities themselves? Well, they can if they can fund it. They, they will agree. The universities, if they give money to a university, they can create uni- uh, okay. professorial posts. Yeah, um, on, on reading this statement, some quarters may deem the effort to balance gender inequality with jobs for the girls as an oxymoron. Does this discriminate against men? But hear me out, she says, almost certainly with Ona Mali in mind, this is not about <laughs> keeping men out of high-powered positions in the third-level sector. We don't need to. We have excellent men charged with important senior positions across education. This is about affording women of equal yet unrecognised proficiency an opportunity that is currently not available to them because of a traditional status quo which is badly in need of reform. Um, I think the um, 
the the front page piece that the news piece written by Maeve Sheehan which kind of surrounds the story does mention that there's been consultation with the Attorney General I don't know if it's it's actually mentioned in the Minister's own piece itself but basically her attitude seems to be that the quality is already there and there's some sort of institutionalised sexism that means that women can't get jobs to which they are qualified and uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to get them but I, I'm, I'm intrigued as to whether it means the creating of, of new posts and mm. if so uh, or is it just a case of if a professorship becomes vacant do you then restrict it to, to female applicants or if she's creating new female roles is there perhaps the danger that you end up creating them in positions which are seen as gendered uh, or particular academic fields in which women have an interest and men perhaps less well, so? Presumably it'll be the opposite it will be in those fields where women are underrepresented because in STEM for instance for perhaps historic reasons where where just fewer women going in at say BA level and then master's level and then PhD level. So I assume it will be not in those areas because there isn't an issue in those kind of more gendered areas. The, the, on page five, uh, equality legislation prohibits sex discrimination in job applications. The law does allow for positive action <laughs> to remove existing inequalities that women may face in accessing employment or training. It's understood that the minister's initiative is considered to fall within positive action as it is aimed at redressing a long-standing imbalance. And actually, just on own point, the University of Adelaide uh, recently advertised academic positions for women only in mathematics, engineering and computing, which again, those STEM uh, subjects mm. that, that you mentioned. Uh, in terms of a backlash, because the Minister mentions herself a backlash, and uh, like the uh, backlash is inevitable, that's why she mentions it. I imagine it would be uh, more vociferous if it is kind of existing roles are suddenly like say Owen is told actually Owen that job that you were kind of had your eye on a few years down the line you're not allowed going to be allowed to apply for it. it less so if somehow she could find the money to create a position Yes I know people get very bristly about positive discrimination for a variety of reasons but when she was talking about a backlash I actually started to think about a political one and couldn't help when I was reading her opinion piece have a little montage in my head of all the times I was at Fianna Fáil doorsteps where Micheál Martin was like pleading with the government to uh uh, invest the funding that was called for in the Castles report to, uh, about higher education. And speaking of jobs for the girls, when uh, this role was created, some commentators uh, claimed that maybe it was Miss Mitchell O'Connor who had benefited from a job being created from, for the girls because that role was brand new when she was demoted from a senior ministerial position mm. by Leo Varadkar. And this is kind of, I kind of forgot that that ministerial role existed because this is the first kind of major policy I have heard of from it. The intention is obviously good, um, but I'm just wondering like all the money that Owen is talking about being required to create these professorships if I was looking at the problems with higher education the fact that really prestigious universities are slipping down the international rankings in Ireland I don't know if that this would be the first place where I would put that money yeah, Hasn't the same ministry been sitting on the aforementioned Cassell's report and not really <laughs> yes. making any sort of mm. salient uh, conclusion about whether we should have the reintroduction of fees or some sort yeah. of loan scheme That this is the, the system has basically been in paralysis for the last couple of years so it is interesting that now apparently more money has been found than the back of some very lucrative sofa uh, to create all these professorships but that they haven't really tackled the and bigger I'm going to come back to some of the issues around funding and third level in a moment but Owen, just, uh, this isn't kind of the first time that there's been talk about like, gender quotas at, at university level in terms of senior positions and that it would be tied some way to funding. Like, What is the situation at the moment? Is it just uh, up to each university essentially to have their own policies about you know hiring and firing? 
Each university, well, it's almost impossible to fire. So, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> hiring then. Um, uh, promote in terms of promote, hiring, it, it as far as I understand, in hiring, there's nowhere has a gender policy in terms of hiring. They they obviously look at it and monitor it, but uh, in our university, for instance, there is a gender quota in terms of promotions, uh, of which there's dubious legality, I think, as well. Uh, but it, it's up to each individual university. There was an interesting thing piece which um, by Larissa Nolan in the Sunday Times, mm. which I think I actually agree with. Uh, there is one... I mean, if, if, if again, if you were to look at the cause of, say, the gender pay gap, uh, which obviously exists, uh, most, a lot of the recent research shows that a lot of that gender pay gap starts when women start when women become mothers the baby gap so it's a, it's effectively a it's a gendered gap all right it's a motherhood pay gap and a lot of it is about the decision when when a couple has a child who's going to go out and try and knuckle down and earn more money and who's going to look after the 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 kids and it tends to be for historic and maybe biological whatever reasons social reasons it it tends to be the the woman uh, takes a mm. takes a step back from the career, and that can explain a lot of that ge- the gender pay gap. I mean, we can see there was a, a report in the by the Institute of Fiscal Studies during the week. I saw uh, you tweeting about it actually yeah. about the uh, the commuter uh, the gender commuter gap commuting gap, which is that men commute a lot further than women do because women tend to when they become mothers tend to want to stay reasonably close to the home and the schools so that they can get home quickly for things and so men whereas men are able to take jobs further away and so we're possibly able to to look to go for higher paid jobs that aren't as accessible to their house and so a lot of the reasons for what we see is a lack of promotions and in a lot of sectors with gender is because of personal decisions that couples make about you know who's going to try harder and Who's, who's going to look, stay and look after kids and spend more time at, at home. Ellen, yeah, Larissa's point essentially is that uh, the feminists out there kind of <laughs> banging the drum about the gender pay gap. That, I could, oh, I'm not putting words in her mouth. She's kind of saying, look, it's an exaggerated problem, that it ex- it doesn't exist up until uh, kind of child child rearing age, if we call it that, mm-hmm. really, I suppose, until people start having babies. Um, and And after that, it exists because of that, because of personal decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think me and Larissa have ever agreed with each other. But if I was going to go through that column and kind of find a a point in it, my point would actually be that the gender pay gap does get discussed a lot. And I wonder if that's because people like me, like middle class Dublin bubble journalists, um, the biggest kind of sexist problem that I am likely to experience is a gender pay gap. And I don't think that it is like the number one issue for women in this country. But I think the fact that you have maybe it, rather than being feminism, it's more mayfainism. If you're talking about the fact that you work in an office and there's a man who's kind of shite and he's being made like a correspondent before I am, then it just happens that when we talk about sexism in the doll or look for legislation that backs up women, it's a lot of these kind of bills talking about big multinationals having to publish their gender pay gap figures, um, you know, representation, a representation for women in politics and the media. I think that actually it would serve us better if rather than just having gender pay gaps, it was more kind of 
inclusive and talking about other issues, other diversity issues other than just male and female, like class um, and ethnicity. So I think that maybe there is a problem with the fact that people like me who can control the narrative on what feminist issues end up in the news are going to pick the one that's most likely to affect us, which is not getting paid the same as men in professional fields. But but like there, the issue about the man getting the correspondence gig before mm-hmm. you like that's that's not a pay gap issue. That's like it. That's no, a and promotions actually that's a good issue. point as well. And like I was thinking uh, when we were talking about uh, Miss Mitchell O'Connor's piece about Emily Pine's book Note to Self, and she was talking about uh, working in academia and the problems that women face and she wasn't really I don't want to misrepresent her or put words in her mouth but she was just talking about more like institutional issues of sexism and I think it's the same in politics like I don't have an issue with getting ahead I've made sure that I'm paid the same as my male colleagues but it's more kind of institutional harder to define issues in Leinster House like me having my own stories explained to me by men who didn't write them that sort of thing so it's that's way more difficult to address, way more uh, difficult to challenge and put your finger on. And it's not something that you can easily fix with a column in a Sunday newspaper. Gav, you're not that shy correspondent you're talking about, are you? <laughs> kind of just, 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 you know, just relaking back into this little cocoon in the corner. <laughs> thinking it might be. Um, there, there is one thing, and in fairness, I uh, would share a lot of uh, Ellen's appraisal there. There's one other thing that Larissa Nolan points out, which I think a lot of people would find uh, quite difficult to, to argue with. Um, we are constantly told that the overall gender pay gap in this country is 14% and are petitioned by worthy campaigns to lower it. The implication is that the fellow next to me gets paid more than I do simply because he has insert genital here um, that would be uh, very unfair not to mention illegal under the Employment Equality Act but she also says pretty rightly it also wouldn't make sense because if we were prepared to accept 14% less pay we meaning women companies would surely only hire women instead Alright look uh, it's time we have to take a quick break uh, uh, Ellen, Gavin and Owen are going over stay with us On the Record On News Talk. This is News Talks on the Record. Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. Five three one zero six for your texts, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cuddihy. Gavin Riley, Ellen Coyne, and Ona Mali are all with me in studio. I want to turn our attention now uh, to Brexit. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> Pop those champagne corks. Maybe not just yet. Uh, EU flips switch as Brexit bid crashes. This is the front page of the Sunday Times. Below the fold, Caroline Wheeler writing that Theresa May has been plunged into a deeper crisis after Brussels rejected her key proposal, which was intended to avoid the UK being trapped in an indefinite customs union. Gavin. Yeah, the door that was opened by Leah Varadkar <laughs> earlier this week, which was that we would maybe consider there being some independent party by which we could decide when the backstop was no longer needed which apparently was the only fudge that Theresa May could sell to her own people as a way of saying we're not going to be in vassalage Mm. forever um, has apparently already been thrown out by the European Union now bearing in mind that there's usually supposed to be what they call the tunnel around this times where basically both sides agree not to make public pronouncements about how the talks are going until the latest round of talks have concluded Uh, nonetheless it appears from what the Sunday Times is telling us that the EU has already thrown out this idea of having some kind of independent mechanism to assess when the backstop expires or is no longer needed. Uh, All of which means if there is to be a backstop, it would have to be a backstop in indefinite sort of semi-permanent terms, which would mean that the UK would find itself inextricably linked to European trading standards and rulemaking until the end of time, which is... Or at least least Northern Ireland would. 
uh, or at least Northern Ireland would, but of course Northern Ireland will not accept being extracted off from the rest of the glorious and, and pre- precious well, union parts of as Northern is Ireland. continually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, yeah. apparently Northern Ireland only speaks with one voice at the moment, which of course is what, what we all have to remember. Um, so basically it seems that we're getting towards the, the intractable thing where we're all just staring down the barrel of uh, nothing in particular happening at all um, because as it stands right now, uh, basically if the EU says there can't be any mechanism through which the backstop can be reviewed or expired, that the backstop has to be indefinite, then they will say that the backstop, certainly as regards Northern Ireland, must be permanent. Northern Ireland will say we can't be treated any differently to the rest of Britain, which means that the entire UK will be bound to European rules forever, which is against the whole principle of Brexit, which suggests that come four and a half months' time that they're going to be leaving with no control or uh, any kind of transition deal. Oh, the boulder is rolling back down the hill. Uh, (laughs) Owen, there was a sense in in the last couple of weeks that, you know, the fudge was on. Is it off again? I presume a fudge will happen. Um, I mean, it's, but it's, it, 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 I mean, it's looking like what might happen is that there won't be a proper deal as such, but that there will be. I mean, the real problem seems to be within Britain now. So I, I suspect the UK and the EU could, and the Irish government could agree some sort of fudge to that Theresa May might be able to agree, but. It looks increasing with Joe Johnson's uh, resignation this week. It looks like it's almost impossible for her to get anything through. I mean, you've got reasonable, what we regard as reasonable remainers now resigning. Uh, the hardline Brexiteers aren't going anywhere. The DUP aren't going to cave in on, on something anytime soon. So even if they do get an agreement with the EU, it's unlikely that there's going to be an agreement within the, that anything that will be able to be passed by the House of Commons. But I wonder how hardline are the Brexiteers when it comes to an actual vote? In, in, in the sense that while negotiations are ongoing, it, it serves your interest to maintain that hard line. But actually then when it, when it gets down, when you get to the cliff edge, you've got to make a choice whether but you go to the But if you're a real job. hardliner and you want to get Britain out of the European Union, you uh, know absolutely, that yeah. so, and some of that ERG or 1922 to... group will. But I wonder how are some of them soft hardliners? I suspect some of them would be willing to take a, take a year or two of complete chaos and even catastrophe in order to pay for the long-term mm. sunlit uplands. That take back control to, for grounding our own yeah, flights yeah. and such. Yeah. Empire 2.0, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there, was actually, what, there was two interesting things, uh, not in today's papers, but in, in yesterday's. One uh, was uh, a thing that Arlene Foster had written in the Belfast Telegraph, and she made very clear, she actually refined what the DUP's concerns were. And one of the proposed fudges that was on the table was that although Northern Ireland would effectively be part of the European customs area, that Great Britain would be allied to and not part of, which is basically like saying one area is going to be dark white and the other area is going to be light black and they're going to still have exactly the same same shade of grey and just arrive at it in different ways. And that was supposed to be the creative fudge through which you ended up having no barriers east-west either. She has said she won't accept that either because anything that results even in principle uh, the North being treated differently to the rest mm. of Britain, let alone ultimately in practice, is completely off the table. Um, and the other point, uh, which was made in one of yesterday's papers, and I think people this side of the, the sea probably didn't realise until it was pointed out, you would assume Joe Johnson being a brother of Boris and talking about uh, vassalage was probably just a slightly less ardent uh, Brexiteer all along. But apparently the real concern now in um, in Number 10 and, and nearby areas is that you'll have Boris on the Brexiteer side rallying people that says that what they're doing is not Brexit, that it's Brexit in name only, but that you're not mm. gaining back the control that you wanted. You have uh, reasonable Remainers on the other side, like Joe Johnson, who says that the Prime Minister has negotiated herself into a dark alley from which there was no escape, and that you have 
inverted commas reasonable people on both sides all coming together to to rally against the final deal which means that there in all likelihood probably will not be one oh come on oh Ellen, a bit of positivity come on <laughs> Just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the positive thing for Theresa May is this is actually her most unified moment in Brexit so far because if you look at the British newspapers today, everyone from the DUP to the Leave Tories to the Remainer Tories to the EU to Labour all hate her idea. So she's actually like brought everyone together for the first time. Thomas Churchill's line about like if you've never made any enemies, it's because you've never done something worthwhile. (laughs) So I mean, it's I mean it's an absolute. They're making the hames of it. But um, like we had a press conference uh, last week in Ivy House, and Simon Coveney was like, first of all, doing this. Look, here I am. We're Karen Bradley. We're getting along. We're in the same room. We're BFFs. But also talking about really optimistically and earnestly about this deal that, as he put it, would be sold on both sides of the Irish Sea. But sure, I can't even see a deal that would be sold on what's now emerging as the wrong side of the Irish Sea. So I don't know, like, what... And I I know that the Irish government is trying to be really responsible with its rhetoric and it's having to deal with, basically, people on the Tory side implying that the Irish government was naive for taking the UK at its word when it first signed up to the backstop. Like, that was really silly diplomacy. But I saw Laura Larkin in the Sunday Independent today is talking about how Irish ministers basically have to avoid talking to the British media at all in case they say... even though if they were on message said everything perfectly fine it will be misinterpreted and someone will go crazy and say that Leo Varadkar is like trying to steal back the six when Britain is occupied trying to deal with Brussels so I mean when you're getting to like that kind of level of kid gloves with them I, I do just kind of despair for the fact that we're in a hopeless situation where despite the fact that people in Brussels and in London would all accept that Ireland diplom- diplomatically has actually been playing a blinder up until now it's it doesn't matter how good the Irish government is handling things because it's just beyond our control. Uh, Owen, is the way through it then to have a, a review mechanism that is so complicated in its description, it allows Theresa May to suggest to her hardline Brexiteers that, yes, look, you have to go through a mechanism, but it's it means we can get out of it eventually. And yet it can be sold in Brussels as essentially just being something to do with oversight. And then once you get kind of it past the line, you can move on to the future trading agreement. And then you can disagree kind of in retrospect about what the review mechanism meant all along in the sense that in December 2017, we had a deal where the backstop essentially was created. And it was on a Thursday, was it? Or was it on a Friday? It was on a Friday, I think. Friday morning. And by Sunday, David Davis was on BBC uh, renegotiating and reinterpreting it, <laughs> yeah. but it actually didn't matter because you know they had been. It, it allowed everyone to move on to the next stage. Is that the way to do it? Yeah, but I mean, it's one. No, I think. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to solve the problem here. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing moving on to the next stage, but there is this stage of March the 29th um, where we have to get past. And as Gav pointed out, we have to agree the the DUP will not even agree to differences in principle across the, the IRC. Uh, the hardline Brexiteers and the reasonable Remainers are not being going to be sold by this because they know that essentially this is tying the UK to some sort of ECJ, the European Court of Justice uh, uh, rule making uh, or rule, rule decision making. Um, and so I suspect that it, it 
this won't work. I think what will have to happen is something's going to have to happen in, in London. It will be, and that might mean an election, change of government, change of prime minister in, in the Conservative Party, but something will have to happen. There will have to be a decision taken there where they say, OK, we're either going to do this hard Brexit or we're going to do a we're going to reconsider completely. But I'm not sure that they will get us. I'm not sure that there's going to be a soft Brexit that will be acceptable to to the British House of Commons at the moment. Uh, very quickly, I wonder whether uh, we might be overlooking, assuming that the Sunday Times story is correct and that uh, the EU has ruled out any kind of uh, mm. independent mechanism. I wonder, will there be any domestic fallout for Leo Varadkar on that here? Because he was already being accused of completely abandoning his previously resolute position in even allowing for the premise of our view mechanism to begin with. And it was sold by Fine Gael as being this is the flexibility or the generosity that we need to show to help Theresa May drag a deal over the line. So if the teacher is now seen as having offered a concession which was almost seen as a, a Rubicon he couldn't cross and the EU even has said sorry that's a line that we can't cross then will there be domestic fallout for, for Leo Varadkar at home I wonder Yeah it's hard to know as well if there was an election what sort of parliament you'd have in the UK that would be any better than what's there at the moment you know, even even mm-hmm. if you had a, an entire switch of uh, a dominant party, uh, Dan Snow, the historian, had a great tweet yesterday. About Jeremy Corbyn gave an interview to Der Spiegel where he says mm-hmm. you couldn't have a second referendum. It's too complicated. And Dan Snow said, this guy wants to force Israel back to its pre-67 borders, <laughs> reunify <laughs> Ireland and abolish NATO. But preventing something that doesn't exist yet is too complicated. But this whole premise, and, and they still, no one has been able to agree, but it seems that the general theory that's coming around is that Article 50 can be revoked. That at any point before March 29 next year, despite all of the manpowers and, and uh, you know man hours and resources and talks. well, presumably they won't do that. But what they can the EU can agree to do is just to extend that two year period off. To yeah, but I, but I don't think years. there's a Commons majority for that either, because that would mean inverted commas would delaying the Commons Brexit. Need, um, see, I don't know what the legality is, but whether that could be something that could be see, taken at executive level. See, I presume if the, if the Commons had to pass a bill to allow Article 50 be invoked in the first place, they probably have to have. Uh, pass some other legislation mm. to allow it be delayed again which would mean the Commons voting to inverted commas delay, delay Brexit, Brexit which would never happen so Alright well look we've cleared that up for everyone <laughs> uh, so that's Brexit sorted uh, Gavin, Ellen and Owen will be solving the rest of the world's problems after this quick break On the Record On News Talk You are listening to On The Record, Kieran Cuddehy with you until one o'clock. Gavin Riley, Ellen Coyne and Olo Maddy are with me all in studio. And uh, Gavin, you came thundering into the office this morning, waving your copy of German Playboy over your head. I did, uh, which, which I did, which I bought on uh, the well, you uh, German National you, Holiday. You walk into the, the office, closed. actually. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Tell us, this is a story, it's actually got picked up in the Sindo today in Sun Independent. Uh, Ennio Morricone. Thank you for that very vital clarification. It's called <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, a cretin who makes trash movies. Yeah, um, the uh, the composer, obviously, Ennio Morricone, uh, wrote the score for Tarantino's uh, recent western, The Hateful Eight. Uh, so you would think that they would perhaps Which ought was to a trash movie. Well, there you go. There's uh, some <laughs> nice uh, scene setting kill there in the backdrop, just to, just to set the scene for this terrible confrontation that I'm about to tell you about. Uh, during an interview with the aforementioned to Playboy Germany uh, Morricone who was obviously known for this score The Good, Bad and the Ugly among others uh, described how the collaboration with Tarantino on The Hateful Eight was not a particularly happy one and referred then to Tarantino's work as trash 
The man is a cretin, he said. He just steals from others and puts it together again. There is nothing original about that. And he is not a director either. So not comparable to real Hollywood greats like John Huston, Alfred Hitchcock or Billy Wilder. They were great. Tarantino is just cooking up old stuff. Uh, he calls out of nowhere and then wants to have a finished film score within days. Which is impossible, which makes me crazy, because that's just not possible. <laughs> Marconi was speaking ahead of an appearance at the Three Arena on February 15th, 2019, for which tickets are now on sale from Ticketmaster and all good outlets. Alright, he was plugging his uh, appearance at the Three Arena in German Playboy. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that was the story. As I said, look, it's picked up and it's on the Independent today. Uh, People read it. Uh, Plenty of coverage well in the papers of uh, confidence and supply. Uh, where are we, Gav, with confidence uh, and supply? There One was more year, I think, is the latest. Yeah, well, according to the Sunday Times today, yeah, um, St- Stephen O'Brien has, has quoted Fine Gael sources who say they expect Fianna Fáil to offer uh, just a one-year extension, he says, to the confidence and supply deal, which falls a little bit short of the Taoiseach's hope of having a general election in summer 2020. Now, this is apparently that Fine Gael expects Fianna Fáil to at least agree to one more budget, if not till summer 2020. Bearing in mind, one more budget won't be until October October 2019 and it takes until Christmas 2019 to legislate for it which means that in fact at the earliest that would mean spring 2020 Uh, but either way it seems the talks haven't been all that urgent because uh, only on Thursday just gone um, there was yet another meeting between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil teams they were given a presentation from the Secretary General at the Department of Housing Um, they didn't even issue a press release afterwards which has become their usual thing and when you bear in mind that Leo Varadkar wanted the deal to be done by the end of the Halloween recess, which was 10 days ago, um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have now met uh, a sum total of three times about uh, renegotiating the programme for government. The talks are probably going to step up a little bit this week uh, with actual face-to-face discussions about where they're going. Um, but bearing in mind that we don't know exactly what the shape of Brexit is yet or that they'll want to keep their powder dry, I suspect that there won't be any material progress for a little while yet. Yeah, and that's the... The, the great, great ponderable, isn't it, uh, that uh, if there is a fudge on Brexit, Leo might just cut and run anyway. Yeah, I am so impressed with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael for making something so important, so boring. Like, I actually <laughs> could not care less. Um, but I always wonder when we start talking about confidence and supply, like what they're actually trying to do, which is just stay in power for one or two more years. Um, And journalists have a very visceral fear of elections. Like we just hate covering them. They're awful. Your diet gets ruined. Oh, speak for yourself. (laughs) I love, I, well, no, this is unfair. I wouldn't love it. But a little bit of me would be delighted. Well, a little bit of mileage would go a long way in the Cudahy household. That's basically where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel still like the, the service general, rates and mileage are demanding. Because we just have, I mean, I still have flashbacks of the attempts to form a government after 2016, which I think, mm. according to my memory, went on for seven million years. And this time last years. year, we were like, yeah. we were all, um, around, it was around this time last year when we all started getting like palpitations about um, Francis Fitzgerald that almost being the tarnished uh, that stole um, Christmas. But I do kind of wonder, like, is it fair for us to just project this idea that nobody wants an election? Like, yes, nobody ever wants one, but it's kind of like going to the dentist. You do have to do it every now and then. Is it actually, has anybody double checked with the public if they're okay with this government staying in power for two more years? Or should we just get it over with now? How does one check other than going to conduct an election? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, let's have a mock election and then have a real one afterwards. There was a survey that showed that more people want one than don't want one. Uh, I I think the... One of those recent surveys. I can't anyway, remember which. Yeah. Uh, 
But I just want an election. God, I'm sick of this government. Yeah, <laughs> really. I'm tired. And I mean, I, well, partly I've been predicting an imminent election for the last two years. Exactly. So. You might eventually. Yeah. <laughs> eventually you're, you're like that broken clock. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I can understand if if you are, um, if you're Leo Varadkar and you are sitting in the Taoiseach's chair, mm. it's very difficult to risk doing something that you might not be sitting in the Taoiseach's chair. Uh, if you're Michal Martin, you want to look responsible. So Brexit is obviously the way to look responsible and you're going to look, you're going to make sure that you do right by the country so you don't cause an unnecessary election. But I mean, the government isn't really doing an awful lot at the moment and it would be nice to have a clean break. Bear in mind too, if you are Michal Martin, you know that the next general election, which is, is something you have reasonable control over the timing of, is probably your last because Fianna Fáil yeah. doesn't generally tolerate somebody running for yeah, three t- general elections. Yeah, talk to me a bit about that because we, we talk a lot about Leo and whether, you know, he might he might do it and looking at opinion polls and if there's a deal on Brexit, he has a kind of a window in which he could do it. Um, but uh, Michal Martin... Like why? Why would he want to extend this confidence say by a year, by two years? I know you kind of you have some sort of hand on the levers of power, but uh, assuming or hoping that the luster comes off uh, Leo Varadkar, yeah. that the bounce that he got this time last year by bouncing the DUP into a backstop, where he got six or seven points in the opinion polls that he has never let go, hoping that that might begin to ebb away again. But I mean, the the real politique for Fianna Fáil has always been that you can maybe discount twenty eleven because you know Michal Martin had inherited Brian Cowan's mess and that you couldn't really hold him. Personally yeah. responsible for the election performance afterwards, but that you, they gave him the opportunity of 2016 to get back into power. He came reasonably close to it, but didn't get over the line. But he is only the ninth ever leader of Fianna Fáil. The previous eight have all been Tishig before him, and Fianna Fáil will very unlikely tolerate the idea of having somebody who continually leads them into general elections and continually does not lead them into power. Of course, the question mark being if that were to be the case, if there was to be an election next February or March or whenever, and Mihal Martin did not go into power. Um, some, it is incumbent on someone else to perhaps unseat him as who takes leader. over and who does that I don't know yeah interesting they're not overly encumbered with talent right there mm, interesting Stick uh, uh, sticking with matters politics Ellen I, I know you've been covering uh, this week uh, the debate on the abortion referendum where for people who are listening maybe haven't been following us closely at what stage is this at now so after about after three days and I think over 25 hours of debate at committee stage on 180 amendments with only one passing, the bill to uh, basically legalise access to abortion in Ireland has just passed committee stage. So uh, the reason that this week was kind of interesting is you kind of went back into the committee rooms in Leinster House, which um, last year had very heated debates on the prospect of whether or not the Eighth Amendment should be repealed in the first place. So now we're back knowing that uh, it was repealed with overwhelming public support and that for the first time in the history of the state, an Irish government is going to try to legalise abortion, uh, free access to abortion for all women who uh, require one up to 12 weeks. The reason this was interesting is you it was the first time you'd had basically pro-choice politicians, which now bizarrely extends from the solidarity grouping all the way to Fianna Fáil against um, these kind of pro-life politicians, traditional ones that we would have heard a lot of, like Matty McGrath and also people like Patrick Tobin, who are trying to do what they can now to appease their base and also set themselves up for some sort of pro-life fight back. The reason it was so interesting is we started to see the tactics that they're going to use. So they tabled 16 amendments. One of, some of them were quite controversial. Maybe listeners will remember during the week it emerged that they wanted to force women who had an abortion to um, either have a burial or 
or cremation afterwards. Obviously, up to 12 weeks, that's quite an interesting proposal. But a lot of those amendments were copied wholesale from mainly Republican-run states in the United States, which are trying to row back on Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade, um, American and Irish kind of anti-abortion pro-choice movements have always been inexplicably linked because the reason we have the Eighth Amendment is because of the constitutional right to abortion in America in the first place. So it's quite interesting to see the tactics that are being used now to roll back access to abortion wherever possible in the United States is now being used as a template for these anti-abortion politicians ahead of free access to abortion for the first time in Ireland. Uh, The the 180 amendments were tabled. What was the one that was accepted? Uh, Simon Harris's own amendment, which was to have the government would have a review in five years time of an abortion law. He's now agreed to move that back to three. I wonder, is he hoping he actually won't be the health minister by the time that that comes around. Um, A lot of the other amendments, yes, they didn't get through, but they were kind of knocked on and there was a lot of agreement. Again, this weird political union going all the way from the hard left all Mm. the way to Fianna Fáil, wanting to make the bill more feminist. So like using, uh, removing a reference to uh, a woman's menstrual cycle because they think it's weird to have reference to women's periods in law. They want to make the language more trans-inclusive. That's to do with the the starting date of of the the pregnancy. pregnancy. Now that's quite difficult because even after this law is passed, illegal abortions in Ireland will still, uh, if you perform an illegal abortion as a doctor, you will still face 14 years yeah. in prison. So people will be very nervous if, if a woman is at 10 or 11 weeks and they're not 100% sure what 12 weeks means to perform that mm. termination of pregnancy if they can still face a criminal sanction. There was another one that I thought was quite striking as well of the amendments that were put down. And again, it speaks to the, the panoply of uh, this accidental, uh, you know, integrated lobby group that's emerged from the left towards the right where as it stands right now the bill is structured so that after it opens with definitions and stuff the first thing you see is the list of offences the things that it is still illegal to do before you go on to then create exceptions and mm. certain rights where you can where you can access abortion and most of the people saying well if you were to read the bill you shouldn't have the chilling effect of pulling it down off a shelf and opening it and the first thing you see being a list of criminal offences so there was almost a universal position across the members of the committee to say why don't we restructure it and that was again another thing that Simon Harris said that he would have to go back and get the Attorney General's advice on, see how you could re-sculpt or restructure the bill so that it didn't open with the chilling effect of seeing a list of possible sanctions or jail terms or what have you. Yeah, I, that was an issue uh, that came up as well in the Dáil debate. And I, I, like, I'm not sure, like, offences like that, it was listed that way because that's how legislation is written. Now, there's nowhere set in stone that you have to put it in that order. And also, how many people open up the legislation, legislation. and read it. Well, no, that no, was, like as in law students do. You know what I mean? But well, that was actually the mad thing about this is that they were specifically trying to move it because they think that people will open it up and read it. Like it's a bizarre situation to be in where you basically have the majority of Irish political parties trying to make a bill symbolically more feminist looking and more kind of pro-choice in spirit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, a lot of the amendments were kind of symbolic in nature, like changing the language, making it more women focused, talking about changing changing a reference to an examination to a consultation with the woman so that her voice is kind of recognised. And then at the other side, you basically had these attempts to water down the bill and make it as restrictive as possible by the anti-abortion TDs. They knew that none of those amendments were going to pass. It was almost more important for them that they didn't because now people like Padre Tobin can turn around and say the Fianna Fáil health spokesperson voted against using an anaesthetic for a fetus, voted against... Pain relief. Yeah, pain Mm. relief, a dignified disposal. That is so important 
important going into the next general election if you actually going to, are going to see these pro-life um, politicians distill again into single issue TDs to try and get more of a pro-life presence and, and, in the Dáil. And the other point too, don't forget, is that this again has to go back to the Dáil for plenary sessions the week after next and what's mm. called report stage, which, you know, as Ellen rightly pointed out during the week, will largely be a carbon copy of this and you will see almost virtually uh, identical amendments put down again where instead of it just being committee members the entire Dáil will be asked to vote on uh, dignified disposal of, of fetal remains or on medicinal uh, pain relief for uh, fetal life etc etc and it will become even more of a, a lightning rod then when it's not just ATDs in the basement of Leinster House but rather 158 in the full daylight of the Dáil chamber having to vote on the same stuff It again. is a relief though that at least for at last these things are being debated in the Dáil and the legislation has been made in the Dáil and in committee stage and not in the Supreme Court and not being kind of shouted about on the streets. And so, I mean, one, I mean, I was following Ellen's coverage during the week of it and I mean, a lot of it is kind of pretty unsavoury, the stuff that the, the pro-life side are trying to do. But at least, I mean, they should be allowed to do it because, you know, they're elected representatives mm. and at least, at least it's happening there now. And then, but before we go, where to now then for the legislation? What's the, the the process from here to the end of the year? Say so, yeah. It like they are under pressure because Simon Harris made what I would think is a kind of ill-advised promise that legal abortion services will be in place in January. To be perfectly honest, I don't really see that happening. And the other thing about report stage is there was now all the anti-abortion TDs will be on to you straight away to say that they didn't, but there was some attempts to slow things down at committee stage. Um, they will kind of at report stage they will have a bit more time to kind of slow it down again it's now November I'm just kind of wondering would it would almost be the best thing ever for Simon Harris if it was delayed he was able to say the reason that abortion services aren't legal in Ireland in January is because of these terrible anti-abortion TDs who won't respect the will of the people because if it gets through before Christmas I don't see those services being up and operable in time. Yeah, it's not on the dull schedule for the week just coming, which means that it's not going to be back again until the week after next, which means the first debate could be November the 20th. And even if the doll was totally finished with it, by the end of November, it would still have to go through the Shannon and have almost exactly the same procedure again. So it would be a race against time even to get it onto the statute books, let alone, as Ellen says, having yeah, the clinical... Yeah, before the Christmas bandwidth. recess, Leo could cancel all their holidays, maybe like all the doctors and nurses, and they could uh, <laughs> maybe they could get it Easy done in time. Uh, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, Ellen Coyne, journalist with the Irish uh, with the Times, Ireland edition, and Dr. Ona O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government at DCU. Thank you all very much uh, for coming in. Time for a quick break. On the record. On the record. On News Talk.